Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts and to pretty much the middle, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and we'll be uh, in verses 22 through chapter 16, verse 5. Uh, Since we began our study in the book of Acts, we've been watching the the steady growth of of the Christian church. And as we look through this kind of scrapbook, as it were, of our family history, one of the first pictures that we come upon is a small group of Jewish men and women in an upper room who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Savior promised in the Old Testament, and that he was calling them to go out and to tell all people of the forgiveness and the freedom that could be found in his name. And as Luke, the author of of Acts, describes the, the movement of the early church out of the upper room in Jerusalem, he's not only giving us the the history of who we are, but he's calling us, remember, he's calling us all these generations later to join in, to join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. We get to be a part of this. It's a call to be a part of the movement to proclaim the kingdom of God in the world. And that's a glorious thing to be a part of. But it's not a simple thing to be a part of. As we have seen and will continue to see the the expansion of the kingdom of God from a small, what we might call a small Jewish sect that believed Jesus was the Messiah, the expansion from that to a worldwide faith was not an, an easy task. There were missteps, there were growing pains in the early church as there have always been wherever the church and the gospel goes. One of the great lies believed by some people is that we who call ourselves Christians have life completely figured out, which we don't. (laughs) Uh, Another probably more prevalent lie believed in the world is that we Christians think we have life all figured out, that we don't struggle, that we don't fall into temptation, that we don't fight, that we don't fail. The church has sometimes portrayed its, its leaders, especially in ways that feed into those kinds of lies. Uh, early Christians inadvertently developed a form of biography that has, been come, has come to be known as hagiography. And a hagiography is often noted for the way that it fails to talk about any of the failures of its subject. So this saintly person that's written about is portrayed as having made few, if any, mistakes. Rather, their life is is described in glowing and even supernatural ways. They are free from sin and free from struggle. But if we are honest, if someone wanted to write a hagiography about our lives, or even about our church, or we could say any church, they'd either have to lie or just ignore large chunks of our existence. Of course, if we rightly understand the gospel, we're not tempted to do that. We don't want to write hagiographies about ourselves. We don't deny the fact that we fall on our faces every day. Because the gospel is all about the truth that we are sinners. That's where it begins, isn't it? It begins with the fact that we can't save ourselves. And we have to fall helplessly on Jesus. And Jesus is able to save us. 
He can save us because he rose from the dead and he can give us new life through his death and his resurrection. So the gospel keeps us from uh, trying to pretend like we don't struggle in life or that we as a church don't have conflict. Not only that, but not only does the gospel keep us from pretending that life isn't filled with struggle and sorrow, but the Bible itself, where we turn to, to understand our faith and our practice, the Bible consistently attests to the fact that, that we are people who are broken and people who fail, and that God's people throughout all the ages have been that. We can look at the, the pages of social media and we can find modern-day autobiographical hagiographies where people just want to talk about all the positive things. But if you want a, an honest picture of human life and struggle, the Bible is a great place to turn to. Because the pages of Scripture are filled with heroes of the faith who were anything but heroic at times and anything but perfect. Every person in the Scriptures, all the men and women, with the wonderful exception of Jesus Christ, were totally imperfect. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter, and even even Paul, they were all failures at times, and they all struggled. And the scriptures aren't afraid of of recording the ways that past saints failed and struggled on the road of faith. I think it's good for us to just take a moment and kind of own that, to remember that, that, that you don't have to be perfect. And in fact, that the Christian faith doesn't want you to think that you can be. Because the scriptures are filled with imperfect people and churches, and, and so is church history. And we're right there with them. We, we stand in this wonderful, unbroken strand of flawed but forgiven followers of Jesus. That's the line that we're in. Cademan's Call sings it like this. They say, I come from a long line of leavers. I like that thought that begins with Adam and Eve who had to leave the garden. And since then, we've all been leaving because we just struggle with sin. I remember when we studied Jacob, we said that like him, we can call ourselves children of the dislocated hip, uh, people who are broken, but still believing. We're flawed leavers. We're, we're frail limpers. We make mistakes. We struggle. We believe wrongly. We misunderstand each other. We hurt each other all the time. But praise God, we are forgiven and we're shown grace by God every day. We're not people who have arrived, but we're people who are clawing our way to the kingdom, kingdom sometimes by by hook or crook. And so we're thankful that that God is a God of grace. And as those who are prone to mistakes and prone to failures, prone to, to struggling, but who have received God's grace, we are called to be gracious towards one another, remembering that the gracious life is not a simple one. That's the truth I want us to see from Acts 15. And into chapter 16, it's this. We are called to be gracious towards one another, remembering that a gracious faith is not a simple one. We're called to be gracious towards one another, remembering that a gracious faith is not a simple one. Jesus told the parable, you remember, of a a man who was forgiven a great debt. Do you remember this parable? He's forgiven this massive, insurmountable debt And then he won't forgive a friend, a brother of an infinitesimally smaller debt that is owed to him. And it's this shocking story that reminds us, as Jesus says elsewhere to Simon the Pharisee, that we 
who have been forgiven much should love much. And so too, we who have been shown grace must extend grace to others, especially, especially to those who are part of our family of faith. However, holding firm to the truth and extending grace at the same time is not always easy, and it's not always simple. Drawing hard lines is easy. I can tell you where to draw lines and how to keep them. That's simple. Being gracious as we walk through this life together, that's not easy. It's not simple. It's complex. But we are called to be gracious towards one another. And as we are gracious, we have to remember that a gracious faith is not a simple one. It was two weeks ago that we first looked at the Jerusalem Council here in Acts 15. And we remember we talked about how they, they modeled for us uh, how to act as Jesus instructed his disciples to when they faced conflict and opposition, that they were to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Maybe some of you kids remember drawing your, your serpent doves. We're, we're under the, the leadership of the apostles and the elders. We saw the church do that. They dealt with conflict well. And then last week we tried to get a picture for why this division between Jewish and Gentile Christians was so significant. And seeing that, we then considered how the, the church dealt with the theological issue that was on the table by clearly stating that circumcision and law-keeping were not required for salvation, that those burdens had never been borne by anyone, and to add them to the gospel would be to add trouble to good news, and when you add trouble to good news, it's no longer good news. So Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James and the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem all agreed together and with the Holy Spirit that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. But into that spirit of unity and in the midst of this affirmation that the gospel is given freely, with those two things kind of as a backdrop, Luke helps us to see that living the truth of the gospel in the midst of a fallen world is never simple. That we can be gracious towards one another. But we have to remember that as we're gracious towards one another, things get a little muddy. And it's hard to know how to deal with some conflict that arises. So think about that. And look with me beginning in, in Acts chapter 15. And I want to start in verse 22, just after the council has made their decision. And this is what they say. Acts 15, beginning in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had come from Antioch to deal with this issue. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Here's what the letter said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. 
If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. As I read that, did you notice some of the, what I might call, head-scratching moments in the text? I'll point them out. First, the council says that law-keeping is not needed. If that's true, then why do we find them instructing the Gentile believers to keep the law by staying away from certain foods? The second one I see is, we, we know that Paul agrees with everyone that circumcision is not necessary for salvation, and he even rebuked Peter to his face on those kind of issues when they were in Antioch, then why in Acts 16 does he ask a new convert who was half Greek to be circumcised? And if the church is so unified, then how could Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement so strong that it caused them to separate and no longer journey together on future mission endeavors? I want us to consider these three items that give us pause. We'll call them the elephants in the text. And those three things are the requirements from Jerusalem, the circumcision of Timothy, and the separation of Paul and Barnabas. So those are the three ways we're going to look at this text. There are three points that we'll walk through to look at this. And in each of these, we're going to see that we are called to be gracious towards one another, remembering that a gracious faith is not a simple one. So first, the requirements from Jerusalem. Why these requirements? Well, here's what James seems to be doing in his, his, his advice to the council and then the letter that they, they send. First, he and everyone are very clear that the Gentile believers do not need to be burdened with Jewish scruples in order to be saved. There is no need to burden or to trouble the Gentiles with these things as if they were necessary for salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. So when he asks them to send along these four requests, we know, we can be certain, 
that they are not thought of as being necessary for salvation. That's not why they're included. The four specific standards that are to be kept are they are supposed to abstain from and avoid eating meat polluted by idols, meat that was strangled, blood, and fourth, they are to abstain from sexual immorality. And he gives us reasons for doing for these things in verse 21. James says they should stay away from these things for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues, which we saw on the missionary journey. Moses is read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. We saw that. So what was James' motivation behind these four stipulations? These things were to be kept because of those who heard Moses read every Sabbath. Who's that? The Jews. They're to be kept for the Jews, and out of love and charity, these specific things were supposed to be done so as not to offend the Jewish brothers and sisters who were sensitive to these things. Love and grace were to be extended to them for the sake of greater unity. Now, there's a difficulty here that we need to at least think about, and it arises when we think about the three regulations about food that are seen as concessions to this Jewish conscience, but then it also says something about sexual immorality, which seems to be sort of a, of a higher order. In, in other words, keeping the laws about kosher food can be understood as being done in love for one another. But sexual purity is a, is a universal Christian virtue, no matter what the situation or what the people group you're going to. Hopefully that makes sense. There's a lot of possible answers Some say that all four stipulations laid down should be kept still. That blood and strangled animals and meat offered to idols should still be avoided, as well as sexual immorality. Paul seems to disagree with this, at least in part, in 1 Corinthians 8 and what we read in Romans 14. So I don't know if that's correct. Another option proposed is to make the prohibition against sexual immorality less general and more specific. So more tied maybe to Leviticus 17 and 18, ceremonial laws. So it's thought that the council was saying you're not supposed to marry certain people. Or or maybe it was some other specific form of sexual immorality that was being referenced that everyone knew when they read it. They understood because that was, was clear to them. Or maybe it was the fact that sexual immorality was a place of common failing outside and it was a great offense to the Jewish people. And so that's why it was added. I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to say. And I'm not sure where to fall on the issue. We had a good discussion out there in the lobby a couple weeks ago trying to hash it out. Here's what I know, though. We should always keep the plain things the main things. That's what Alistair Begg tells me to do. Keep the plain things the main things. And what seems to be clear and plain is that these stipulations were given as an opportunity for Gentile believers to extend grace and charity to their brothers and sisters in Christ who were Jewish. That's the point. If you were here last week, we could say that these requirements offered an opportunity for Alex, our hypothetical man from Antioch, an opportunity for Alex to lay aside some of his freedom as a means of blessing and not offending his new brother, Asher. And so at the core of these rules is a call to love one another. That's the key, isn't it? Grace and love. While all this is included in the letter, it's taken to the church in Antioch, and initially we might wonder what the aftermath of this letter is going to be in Antioch and in the other Gentile churches. Can you 
maybe imagine they would have read this publicly. So you can imagine them gathering everyone around and maybe Silas or Judas, who had been sent from Jerusalem, is chosen as the spokesperson. He's going to read the letter. And they read it aloud to the, the church that's gathered as an encouragement that the leaders um, don't want the church to be burdened. What a great encouragement this would be. The, the leaders in Jerusalem say, we don't want new believers to be burdened. We don't want to create unnecessary roadblocks to them coming to salvation. We want to be like John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was all about exalting every valley and lowering every hill so that everyone could see Jesus clearly. And that's, that's what they want to do. Let's make it easy for people to believe. Well, we, we know that they are professing faith in Jesus alone. So how would then, after saying, we don't want to create any roadblocks, how would it sound for them to hear these stipulations? These four things they're supposed to do. Would someone in the crowd say, hey, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And then another might chime up and say, yeah, you know, if these Jewish ceremonial laws aren't necessary for salvation, then I'm not doing them. I'm going to eat whatever I want. That was possible, wasn't it? Could have happened. But we don't hear that here. What we hear is rejoicing at the encouragement of the letter. And in that, there's this mutual submission by the early believers. The church in Jerusalem loved all of their traditions and practices, but they saw the beauty of the gospel and they didn't want to hinder anyone from coming to faith. So they laid many of those things aside. And then the church in Antioch sees how important these traditions and these practices were to their brothers and sisters who were Jewish and they were more than willing to set aside certain foods that they wanted to eat if it would increase the unity of the, of the church and it would allow the gospel to go forward. And so the church agrees on the truth of the gospel. And they also value love and unity and grace. They speak the truth in love. Now, Hopefully you're starting to see how applicable this is to us. But before we jump there, before we, before we go there, I want us to go to uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, because I think the issue is similar and the application will be similar. And in those verses, the elephant in the text is the circumcision of Timothy. So we have the regulations from Jerusalem. And the, the next elephant that we want to consider is the circumcision of Timothy. So at this point, Paul is traveling back through the places that he and Barnabas had been earlier, letting them know what the church in Jerusalem had decided. And he came to Derby. You remember he was, we know a little bit about Derby, but in Derby, he ran into Timothy, who was a convert to Christianity, who had probably come to faith during Paul's first missionary journey. And his mother was, was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And everyone knew this. This was common knowledge. And so they knew that Timothy was not circumcised. Which doesn't matter, right? Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. The Jerusalem Council made that crystal clear. And in fact, Paul was strong on this even before the council. You can go back to Galatians chapter 2. And when men from Judea came and they said that another guy, Titus, who was a Greek, that he needed to be circumcised, Paul outright, outright refused to let that happen. There's no way we're circumcising Titus because he doesn't need to be. And yet here, he circumcises Timothy. Why? Luke tells us in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places. 
because of the Jews who were in that area. Just as with the council where the four rules were for the sake of the Jews, here Timothy was circumcised because of the Jews. Was Timothy circumcised for salvation? No. He was circumcised for ministry. It was for gospel advancement. Now, Titus wasn't circumcised because he was 100% Greek, first of all, and secondly, because he was being told that he needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, that he needed to do that work to be a true Christian. And so Paul said, no way. But Timothy was circumcised voluntarily as an act of grace and charity towards the Jewish people. He was half Jewish, so he had at least some reason for being circumcised, unlike Titus. And since everyone was now clear, based on the Jerusalem council, that that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, Paul said, well, let's circumcise him and eliminate any barrier to this promising young man coming along with us and being a part of our mission team. Interesting. Let's bring these these stories to us here today. This is the instruction that I find. Hopefully you agree. As we seek to be gracious to one another in the church and in ministry, we hold firmly to the truth of the gospel and to to the gospel of Jesus. But we also look at all the secondary non-gospel issues and we, we look at them through the lens of two questions that I want to throw out, two, two areas that we want to think about. And it's the areas of fostering unity and furthering the gospel. So on secondary issues, we look at them and we think about fostering unity and furthering the gospel. Let me play that out. So we ask things like, will me doing this or not doing this build unity? And on the other side, will me doing this or not doing this create strife? In other words, how can I foster unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ without forsaking the gospel? Are there ways that I can build love on secondary issues that maybe would cause an offense? And we also ask, will me doing or not doing this advance the gospel? And again, on the flip side, will me doing or not doing this hinder the gospel's advance? In other words, how can I further the gospel without forsaking it? How can I foster unity? How can I further the gospel? Those aren't easy questions, but they are the kind of questions that that grace makes us ask. And they're especially hard as the good news goes across cultural lines and, and personal preferences. It's difficult to know where to draw those lines. But I think if we start thinking about how can I foster unity and how can I further the gospel, it's helpful. This hits really practical areas, things like, like the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, things like the music that we sing on a Sunday morning, things like the order of a service that we have. We all have preferences. We all have things that we hold dear that are not gospel issues. They are what we might call, some people call them open-handed issues. The gospel is a closed-handed issue. I'm not letting go of the fact that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. But there's some other things that I can have unity in, that I can lay aside preferences for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. There's some of these things that 
maybe um, someone, we could hold them openly as a church. But there's things that we would be able to work with other churches on open-handed issues that maybe as a church we're not going to do them. So things like baptism come to mind. If you're, not, if you're saying that baptism is necessary for salvation, well, that's a close-handed issue. But if you're saying the mode of baptism or the timing of baptism or some of those other things, those can be open-handed. And we may not join together in the same church as members, but we could work together for gospel unity, for gospel furtherance in the world. Now that I brought an issue up, you start to see how hairy this is, isn't it? It's difficult. It's hard. Uh, a man named, I'm not going to say his name right, but he's from the 17th century, Rupertus Melodinius. You've never probably heard of him, but you may have heard it, his principle that he popularized that I heard from, from John Mark the other day. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. It's a good principle. It's not an easy principle. It's not a simple principle. In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. I think that's what the church is modeling here. And as we wrestle with and we ask these questions, we're always careful to make sure that we're not letting these peripheral, non-essential practices and laws get tied into the gospel or be said to be necessary. I heard this story of a pastor who was preaching in a tradition outside of his own. And both uh, the church that he was a part of and the church that he was preaching at held to the essential doctrines and the teachings of the Christian faith. But the church where he was a guest speaker, um, in that tradition, the person that was preaching the sermon traditionally wore a robe. That was just their tradition. And before this man was supposed to go into the pulpit, the, the pastor of the host church asked this guest preacher if he would be willing to wear this traditional preaching robe. To which the man responded, do I have to? And the pastor said, no, you don't have to, but I know that our church would appreciate it if you did. And the guest preacher said, well, if I don't have to, then I will. I think that sort of gets at the principle, isn't it? If you're going to make it a, a core issue, something that I have to do, and I think that's maybe what Paul was saying with Titus. Listen, he doesn't have to be circumcised to be a Christian, so we're not doing that. But if it opens up unity, if it fosters unity, and if it furthers the gospel, and it's a secondary issue, then sure, I can bend. I'll wear a robe. <laughs> That's an imperfect illustration, but hopefully you see how it gets at the spirit of this passage. How can I foster unity? How can I further the gospel without forsaking it? I pray that God would give us a gracious spirit like that. It's easy to draw hard lines. If you want to draw hard lines, that's simple. It's the easy way out. It's hard to be gracious. It's hard to process through this stuff. But I pray that we could be gracious in, in our homes, in our church, in our interaction with other churches in our city and around the world, because I think that's how the gospel is able to go forward in a spirit of love and unity. Now, sandwiched right in between those, those two things, we... We see these, these two pictures of charity for the sake of unity and gospel advance, advancement. There's the, the third elephant in the text, and it's the separation of Paul and Barnabas. The separation of Paul and Barnabas. Of course, the backstory to this scene in church history is found in Acts 13.13, 13, where John Mark, who had come with 
Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey left them in the middle of it and returned back to Jerusalem. But as far as we can tell now, probably by his own um, initiative, he wants to join them again. He wants to come on this next missionary journey. And whatever the reason for his abandonment before, he must have not been worried about it anymore or he thought that he had matured. And Barnabas, who is in fact John Mark's cousin, an interesting elements of the story, they're related. So Barnabas is ready to give John Mark a second chance. And doesn't that fit right in with the character of Barnabas? Just sounds like Barnabas. Let's give Mark a second chance. Let him come along. But Paul, on the other hand, says, no way. And doesn't that sound a lot like Paul (laughs) to say no way? So, who do you sympathize with? Who was right? Were either of them right? Were either of them wrong? I don't know. I don't know if it's that cut and dry, actually. Because we can't fully understand their their motivations. Trevor helped me think about this. He, that It may be that Barnabas was, was focused on the person of John Mark. He was focused on the relationship there. And the opportunity to help John Mark grow. The chance to encourage him. You know, maybe he said to, to Paul, Paul, you know, people change. Circumstances change. Let, let's help Mark. He's growing. I see him growing. Let, let's let him come along and he can really learn about discipleship. And he can see the faithfulness of God and he can see the spread of the gospel. I think this would be really good for him to come along with us. So Barnabas may have been focused on the person of John Mark, but Paul may have been more focused on the mission on the task of getting the gospel to the people who had never heard. And he still felt the sting of Mark's desertion of them in the thick of things. And so he may have said to to Barnabas, Barnabas, I don't have time for people who are going to be abandoning us. We, We could have done so much more in Galatia if we would have had a solid helper with us, but our ministry was slowed down when Mark left. And we know that the the farther we get away from Jerusalem, the harder things are going to get, and we can't get out there and risk having to deal with someone running home in the middle of the journey. It's going to hinder the work. we got to keep going. We can't have him leaving us. Maybe that's how it went. I don't know. Maybe not. However it went down, though, what we do know is that Barnabas took Mark and went back to the churches in Cyprus, which is where Mark had been with them before, and Paul went to the north. And he took Silas with him, and they went back through the towns they had just been to, and then they eventually went on to Europe through the Spirit's leading. So people or mission, what's more important? Individuals or the task? Well, they're both important, right? Are they mutually exclusive? No, not always, but maybe sometimes. It depends on the situation, it would seem, doesn't it? There's no, there's no simple answer. Out of a desire to take the gospel out, some people have pushed too hard, and they've hurt relationships. Others have coddled people too much and they've not accomplished as much as they could have. And so we have to seek the Lord's wisdom and we need to seek to be gracious while holding tightly to the mission. Still, when I, when I pause and I think about what happened here, do you, do you feel a sense of loss? Just take a moment and think about Paul and Barnabas. It's sad to think about Paul and Barnabas parting ways after all the years that they'd worked together. 
I mean, remember their, their story. Barnabas, Barnabas was the guy. He was the only guy who vouched for Paul. When everyone else was rejecting Paul, Barnabas said, no, this guy's, this guy's truly a believer. We need to listen to him. We need to bring him in. That's, that's a friend right there. And, and Barnabas was the one who saw in Antioch that Gentiles were coming to the faith. And he said, you know what? We need to go get Paul. He's up in Tarsus. And he needs to be a part of this because he would be really helpful. Barnabas went and got him. Barnabas was a, a true friend to Paul. And Paul surely knew that. He was very aware of that. Just think about how much these guys had been through in all those early days. Not to mention just the recent trip to Cyprus and Galatia. And then they're in the Jerusalem council together and they got each other's back in there. And then you just start thinking about all the mundane details, the stuff that's not in here. Just, just think about all the meals that Paul and Barnabas shared together out on the road. All the times they were sitting around a, a campfire and laughing and sharing their stories, the experiences that they had, the good, the bad, the ugly. And Barnabas was there when, when Paul was stoned. They, they, they bore on their marks, on, on their body together. They had both been persecuted for what they believed. And now they're, they're separating. They're not going to work together anymore. They won't work together ever again as far as we know. When you start to think about that, can you, can you relate? Have you ever felt that? within ministry, people that you've had to separate from, the difficulty of that. I don't know, maybe faces or churches come to mind, places where you served alongside others, people who were a part of your church, who were a part of this church. And sometimes you separate. And sometimes it's because of a disagreement. And sometimes it's right and it needs to happen. Sometimes it's because of a, a new season of ministry or a new season of life. Sometimes it's for good reasons. Sometimes it's for misguided reasons. But for whatever reason, people left or you left. And it's so sad sometimes to leave people that you've journeyed with, that you've walked with, that you've ministered next to. That's, that's hard. And Paul and Barnabas were not immune from that. If we're honest, just as with this blood, it's, it's often when we look back on those things. In the moment, it's all crystal clear. We know exactly what we think. But then when we look back on it, we can see that, you know, it may be not be as cut and dry as I thought. It may not be as easy to say who was right and who was wrong. There's enough fault usually to go around, isn't there? <laughs> so hopefully we can be gracious as we look back on those that we've sparted with, part, parted with. We can have grace towards those that we love who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace that recognize that, that, that being in life together is just, it's not, it's not easy. It's not simple. We can also look back, I think, with faith. We can trust that, that God knew what he was doing. That in our own stories, when some of those separations have happened and people have gone out from us or we've had to go out from them or there's just been tension that, that God can use that. He, he does that here, doesn't he? Luke helps us to see that the, the separation of Paul and Barnabas doesn't mean that the gospel stops going forward because God's spirit is in both Paul and Barnabas and they both could be used in different ways with, with different people in different places. God could take that split and he created two teams. 
He got a team to go over to Cyprus, and he got a team to go back up to Galatia and then go even further with the good news. It's hard to know, but you might just say, you know what, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy later on, they were the guys. They needed to be on that trip. Barnabas, he wasn't the guy that needed to be there. Silas needed to come along, and this split had to happen so Silas could come. And Mark needed to go with Barnabas so that he could be useful in other ways. Mark needed to go with Barnabas so that he could be useful later to Paul. I made this connection. I never made the connection before, but we don't hear anything else about Barnabas, but we hear about Mark, don't we? Barnabas drops off the scene, but Mark shows up again. And you know where he shows up? One place is at the end of the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon. And at the end of that book, Paul speaks of John Mark as his fellow worker. The guy that he wouldn't bring along is now his his fellow worker. And you remember in his last letter, his final letter, he tells Timothy to send John Mark along. Why? Because he's useful to me. Here's what I think. It is not far-fetched to say that Mark was useful to Paul then because of Barnabas' willingness to give him another chance in this moment. And so if I dream a little bit, which is kind of fun to do with the Bible sometimes, if I think about conversations between Paul and Mark, in those pretend conversations, Barnabas is always coming up. They're always talking about Barnabas because he was the guy that they really had in common. They talk about how unique Barnabas was, how encouraging he was, what a good friend he was. And then I start to imagine, you know, what it, did, did John Mark make it to Paul's side before he died? Was Timothy able to get the message to John Mark that Paul wanted him there, and, and John Mark made it to Paul's side? And if he did, I just wonder if, if John Mark was able to encourage Paul in some unique way, in a way that he never could have, except for what he learned from Barnabas as they traveled around Cyprus that second time. And Barnabas, Barnabas was able to encourage him to keep growing, to keep going. And he never would have been able to do that otherwise. And so in this unique way, Paul and Barnabas split. And yet they are still linked. And they're linked by the guy that caused the split. They're linked by John Mark. Because John Mark is the thing that keeps them together. Who knows what God's doing? Who knows what God has done? Why these things have happened? But I hope we can be gracious I hope we're not like the people we talked about at the beginning that pretend they, they've got it all together. <laughs> Life's too short to pretend like we've got all the answers, okay? I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to draw hard and fast lines on secondary issues because that's a waste of everybody's time and it just causes division where there's no need. We've been shown too much grace to not extend grace to other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And extending grace makes life way more difficult because a, a cut-and-dry law makes it easy to cut people out. But grace is complicated. It's hard. But it's better. It's the better way. And so my hope is that we can link arms as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can walk into that, that complexity, the complexity of asking how to graciously lay aside our rights so that we can foster unity amongst ourselves and amongst other believers. 
that we can ask how we can graciously submit to one another so that we can further the gospel amongst ourselves and within our community. And that we would always leave the door open for how God might be graciously working, even when we're forced to part ways with others. Even when division shows up, that maybe in the moment it's not as easy, but we can step back and say, you know what, there's enough fault to go around, and who knows what God is doing. Let's be gracious. Let's trust what other people are doing, and let's trust what God is doing. You see how this passage ends? It ends with another Luke summary statement. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. It didn't happen because everything went perfectly according to plan. (laughs) This was difficult. But it happened because of the grace of God. And so in all that, we can trust that the Spirit is working, and we can pray and ask God that churches would be strengthened and that they would increase in number all for God's glory. He can do that. He can do that in the midst of we who fail all the time, but hopefully we who are gracious, just as Christ is gracious to us minute by minute of of our lives.